Good evening. This evening's scripture is Matthew 5, verses 1 through 10. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. You may be seated. kind of a motley looking crew but we were comfortable uh, let's begin with a word of prayer <clears throat> father you're great and you are to be praised for the mightiness of your deeds for the depth of your love for the long suffering and perseverance of your patience and your unfailing kindness to us And it's so real, Father. It's not just words on a, on a blank page. These words that come to us, that teach us about the greatness of your character in all of the universe, Father, are words that, that, that move us, that words that teach us. They are, they are the words that not only enlighten us, but they inspire us, Father. Especially when we have an opportunity to see the very places where these words became flesh and blood, became history, became events. And so, Father, as, as, as we think about different texts over the coming weeks that deal with some of the, the stories, the, the, the fantastic magnificent stories that we read from Genesis to Revelation, Father. We, we ask that you will stir our hearts. And we pray this, Father, in hope that you will do this very thing of giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. In the name of Christ, amen. Uh, as you know, uh, uh, not but about 10 days ago, we arrived home from, uh, from about a 10-day trip in Israel. And uh, uh, there are a, a lot of questions that uh, that were posed to to Jordan and to uh, to Wayne and myself. Uh, one of them was this: Did you feel safe? And the answer was absolutely. Uh, we could not have felt safer, uh, as you know. There there's a lot of terrorism in the world. A lot of it, while we were in Israel, was taking place in Germany and in France. Uh, in Israel itself, uh, you know, there's there's a, a, a constant vigilance because of uh, the countries that surround Israel that are not their allies. And so, uh, you know, there is, there is always a, a state of high alert, and there's always uh, guards, and there's, there's always um, uh, patrolmen and police and military that are, are throughout the country as you travel through it. But when you travel into the northern part of the country, it's like being out in West Texas. I mean, it's just wide open spaces. And when you go down to the southernmost part of the nation, the south of Jerusalem, uh, down to the southern end of the, the Dead Sea, 
It's like being in a place that's more wide open but looks worse than West Texas. It's just there's just not a whole lot of people until you kind of get into that, that center part of the country. And so while we were there, there were no incidents. There were, there were no events. We traveled and did as we pleased, and we felt absolutely safe the entire time we were there. Uh, how was the food? Another question we get. Uh, you know, by looking at me, you know that I, I, I like every food around the world. I could eat my way around the world, you know. Um, you do there, you know, you, you do have to get used to the way that people eat in different parts of the world. Um, <laughs> one, one of the things that there were 27 of us, three from San Antonio, 24 from the Dallas Fort Worth area that went. One of the things that the group had to get used to is that Israelis like to eat salad, you know, blue cheese dressing, French dressing. They like to eat salad and sardines and pickled tilapia for, for breakfast. Now they, <laughs> yum, yum, right? Uh, at the same time, they also know that, you know, we're tourists and we're from all over, you know, different parts of the world traveling to, to Israel for different reasons. And so, you know, the, the food I thought was, was fantastic. One of my favorite things about Israel, I love olives. I pop olives like Tic Tacs, morning, noon, and night. They're just, they're fantastic. Uh, you know, the food is really, really good, and, and, it's, and it's a variety, and the, the fresh fruit is great. Uh, uh, Wayne, in, in particular, liked the watermelon and didn't find a bad pos- uh, piece of watermelon the whole time we were there. Food is fantastic. And then thirdly, what did you see? And uh, over the last couple of, 10 days or so, last week and a half, uh, I've tried to answer that, and it just seems to be, it's just a long list. And so what I would like to do in the coming weeks is, to, to, starting tonight, I'd like to just give a quick run, for, run through, maybe one or two pictures of each site so that you can kind of get a feel for the, the path that we took for, for nine days in Israel. And then to come back and to talk in detail about some of these areas to, to sort of flesh out their meaning. Uh, Bargill Pixner, a uh, 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 a guy uh, that lived in Israel all of his life and, and wrote several really, really good books refers to the land as the fifth gospel. <coughs> and the reason for that is that when you know the land and you realize where it is that Jesus is saying and speaking and doing, it sort of enlivens and invigorates the text in ways that you may never have experienced it before. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're just going to do kind of a quick run-through of, of the sites that the three of us saw, and then in the coming weeks we're going to share more deeply the, the spiritual significance of some of these sites. Uh, as we are driving from Tel Aviv, many of you know that we missed kind of the first day of the tour because there were some snafus with, with, uh, with the airlines here in the United States. We were supposed to take off in the morning. We didn't get to Dallas uh, until the evening. The, the flight to, uh, to, to Israel, to Tel Aviv, was in the afternoon, so we missed that completely. So <coughs> we ended up flying the next day into Tel Aviv and then had to take a transport to the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. While we're traveling, we see Mount Tabor, and we'll, we'll talk more about T- Mount Tabor next week, but it, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful mountain. It, you, you go right through the Jezreel Valley, and as you're driving through the sort of the, the northern end of the Jezreel Valley, you see Mount Tabor, just it's flat, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's this gigantic hill, and there's a lot of significance, as you know, to this particular hill. Uh, we went to a place called the Ma'agan Eden, the Garden of Eden Kibbutz on the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. That's where we, we stayed for a couple of days. And as you can see, it's a very, very beautiful place. And that body of water that you see there is the Sea of Galilee. 
So all of our rooms were about 200 yards, more or less, from the Sea of Galilee. The first night that we're there, we have dinner with the group and we get acquainted with them. They were wondering if we were ever going to show up. Glory, hallelujah, we did, and we showed up right at dinner, best time of the day, and got acquainted. And then afterwards, we sat right down there on the beach of the Sea of Galilee and just talked. They talked mainly about the things that they had seen that day. But as you can see, it's really a beautiful area. I mean, I, you know, I could have, like, snagged a picture of Hawaii off of, off of Google, you know, and transposed it here. But actually, what you see is we're on the southern end. We're looking north. <coughs> And that, those mountains right there are actually the western side of the Sea of Galilee, where as you travel up that side, you run into Tiberias, which was gigantic Roman city during the time of Jesus. We don't have any clue, any hint whatsoever that Jesus ever went to Tiberias, but it would be the first city as you go up the western side that you would, you would hit. You go a little bit further to the north, and again, this, this, this is not a sea. This is a big lake, Canyon Lake is bigger than the Sea of Galilee. It's anywhere from 12 to 14 miles north and south and 7 to 8 miles <coughs> east and west. And so as you travel a little bit further north from Tiberias on that western side, you, you come to Magdala where Mary Magdalene was. And there's an, an active ar uh, archaeological dig going on in that place right now. You go up to Gennesar where there's the Jesus boat. From Gennesar you go to Tabga where is... Um, uh, the, uh, the, the place where uh, Jesus uh, reinstituted um, uh, Simon Peter, brought him back into the fold. You go a little bit further, you come to the mountain of the Beatitudes. A little bit now you're on the northern side and you're beginning to go east. You run into Capernaum. And then, you know, we, we went around the other side as well. But this is where we stayed as we, that was kind of for the first couple of days, this was our base of operations. One of the first places we saw early in the morning was the Mount of Beatitudes. This church has been here for an incredibly long period of time. You'll notice that the, uh, the stones are dark. A lot of the stones that you see to the south are, are limestone. When we show you the, uh, the, the wall that goes around the Temple Mount, it's, it's light yellowish golden color. It's limestone. This is actually basalt. It's, it's an, a volcanic stone, and it's black. And whenever you see ancient ruins. Now, this church was built after the time of Jesus, but they used the stones and the, and the rock that was there uh, and that was available. But when you go to ancient ruins in the northern part of Galilee and you see the basalt, you're pretty sure you're looking at first century time of Jesus uh, artifacts and buildings. Uh, this is the view of the Sea of Galilee. We're looking straight south. If you keep going south, you're going to end up in the Garden of Eden, the Ma'agan Eden Kibbutz, where we were staying. We're directly north of the sea on the sea of galilee from where we were staying and as you can see it's pretty close this this mountain where the the beatitudes uh, most of the scholars and most of church history believe it actually took place is really not that far from the from the sea of galilee if you look at a a, a map uh, what you'll see is that there is actually a road that, that circumnavigates the entire lake and if you go just a little bit further north of that road you see that we're going up on a hill and we're actually kind of down overlooking the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. 
Uh, this hill right here, and we'll, we'll show you some different pictures of it, but this is actually inside of the fence of that church where it is thought that the, the, the Beatitudes were, were preached in this area. This hill right here, and this is uh, probably not the, the best picture we'll show you. We'll show you some next week. But you can kind of see that there's a group of tourists that are going down. We were not allowed on the other side of that fence. I, we don't know how they got there. They climbed the fence. They did something illegal, but, uh, but they wanted that picture. But there have been some tests that have been run over the years. At one point, there were 5,000 people that were put on that little hill right there that goes down into the direction of the Sea of Galilee. There was one guy without any amplification to his voice that was put down close to the shoreline. He spoke like this without, without any help, and he was heard easily by 5,000 people. Just sort of this natural theater that was formed right there on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And it's, this is thought to be the place where those words that Paul read were spoken by the Son of God for the first time. And again, we'll talk more about this next week. But when you think about that, you know, that, that all of a sudden there's this teaching that is helping people to understand what human beings are supposed to look like and how they're supposed to live when God's kingdom comes to reign in their heart, that those words were spoken right there and everything begins to change in the way that people's perspective on other human beings and governments and the kingdom of God and of heaven and God and of the Son of Man himself, all of that began to change. That's where it began, right there. From there we went to Caesarea Philippi, what we're doing now is if you're looking at a map, we're going north and you have Syria and Jordan and we're kind of in that little corner where Mount Hermon is located. Now what's significant about this place is not only do you find ruins, and these are the ruins that you find at the entrance to the Caesarea Philippi National Park, and it gives you an idea of what the place looked like during the time of Jesus, but it's this particular cave right here. Now, you might have heard me, if you've taken the Jesus class that we've done a couple of times over the last 15 years, you may have heard me talk about the cave or the temple of Pan. The, uh, the, the, uh, the, the god Pan, you know, half goat, uh, half man, had the horns, uh, the word Pan, he was scary individual, people uh, were afraid to, to meet him in the woods, uh, that's where the word panic came from, people being distressed as they were going through the woods, thinking that they might meet this, this fella. He was worshipped in this area right here. And there's a temple. There's a, you'll see some pictures uh, uh, in a couple of weeks of, of the temple. See, the temple to the sacred goats. I thought, man, you'll never find a place like that in Texas. A pl sacred goats. But this, this cave right here, what's significant about it is that uh, no one's ever been to the bottom of it. It, is, it goes straight down. Um, Caesarea Philippi, there are three headwaters that come and form the Jordan River. One of them is right here, and it comes out right to the, you know, if you're looking at this cave, those headwaters kind of come out below you to the left. There was a, a gigantic altar that was located there. And this is where sacrifices took place, and sometimes human sacrifices took place during the time of Jesus and before and after that. And what they would do is they would take the sacrificial victim, sometimes a human, sometimes you know, an animal, it would be slaughtered, and then they would throw it down through the bottom of that cave. And then they would go down to the headwaters, and if they saw blood coming out of the water, then they would know that the sacrifice was not accepted. Then they would do it again. Until... They didn't see, after the sacrifice, blood coming through that water. So it's just really a horrid spot. And you'll remember in Matthew chapter 16, this is where Jesus goes 
and asked him, who do you think that I am? And Jesus, or, you know, Jesus is, is really testing the disciples, as you know, and he wants to get to them. Who do you say that I am? Not just men, but who do you say that I am? And it's here that the confession is made and Jesus is going to build his church. And right here with these guys, these disciples, he says the gates of hell, this place, in their thinking, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So there is really an object, a huge object lesson that we'll, we'll, we'll flesh out even more in, in a, a week or two. But when he does that in the shadow of this mountain where everybody in the world at that time thought that this was the gateway to the underworld, to, to the place, the, the, the gateway to hell, that is a significant statement. Lunch in Tiberias later that day. That is actually, can anybody identify that fish? It's a Peter fish. Tilapia. Believe it or not, that is a, an African version of the tilapia. It's found in the Sea of Galilee. It's found on the continent of Africa and no place else. And it is, it's called the Peter fish because traditionally this is the fish that is thought, and again, nobody knows, but it's thought because this fish is so prevalent in the Sea of Galilee that this is the fish that came up with the coins for Peter and Jesus to pay his tax. That's why it's called the Peter fish. And, by the way, delicious. From there in Tiberias, we cross the Sea of Galilee. Now, one of the things you notice, and you'll see it again when we show more pictures of this, you can stand on the boat and you can look around and you see the shoreline all around you. And you're going, man, I just thought this was a sea. I thought it was bigger. I thought it was going to be gigantic. It's really not. You look around and you go, man, this is Canyon Lake is bigger than this place. And then it begins to dawn on you as the guide begins to point out, okay, there's Capernaum, there's Gennesar, there's Magdala, Here's Tiberias, and as you're crossing it, you, he going, there's the Decapolis over there, and you go, we're right now floating across the place. Jesus walked on this water right here. He walked on this water. Jesus was in a boat, probably uh, not much bigger than this stage, as he's crossing the Sea of Galilee, and it's a storm. And, you know, one of the funny things uh, when we got out on that water, it was fairly calm, and then the, 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 the breeze picked up a little bit, and all of a sudden we started having white caps out there. And it wasn't anything to be afraid of. We were on a bigger boat, but you begin, you know, the boat's beginning to do this a little bit, and you begin to think about the fact that Jesus said, Peace be still, and this lake became like glass. And the idea that a human being walked across that water that you're floating across right now is just, it's, it's an incredible moment. Uh, from Tiberias, as we crossed the Sea of Galilee to the northern end, there was a boat that was found uh, several decades ago. What happened is that there was a tremendous drought in the northern part of the country. The Sea of Galilee began to recede to places that people had never seen before. And as you know... <coughs> In the time of Jesus, there was a lot of boating activity. Uh, there were some, some battles that were waged you know, with the Romans on the Sea of Galilee. And there were a couple of brothers that were walking out where the water had receded that they had never seen before because it had always been covered with water. And they began to find some nails and some wood and some, some pieces of, 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 of ancient fishing gear. And they realized all of a sudden that there in that mud that was usually covered with water was a first century boat. And so they, they, they made the phone calls. The archaeological crews came out. They basically uh, put sandbags all the way around this thing so that they could begin to dig it out. 
then the rains came the rain started coming the water started rising again and they finally the way they actually got it out of the mud was that they uh they 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 put sort of a, a foam on the bottom of it so that as the rain got under it and the water came it lifted this boat out of the water they put it on a crane and they actually have have covered every single piece of wood from the first century in this boat with paraffin and that's the way that they have preserved it and you can go into the museum right now and if you look off to the left you can see a mosaic of what a first century boat in Galilee would have looked like during the time of Jesus and this is one of those boats and it's uh, uh I forgot the number of pieces the number of different kinds of wood there was um nearly 20 different kinds of wood that was used in the construction of this particular boat now they call it the Jesus boat Nobody has a clue whether or not Jesus was in this boat or not, but it's a first century boat during the time of Jesus, thus the name, the Jesus boat. Very, very interesting, though, when you understand that this boat had a deck on it, and underneath it was probably where Jesus was sleeping in Mark chapter 4 when, when, uh, when the, 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 the sea is stilled from the storm. Uh, from there, we go to the Jordan River. And, uh, you know, River, again, is, uh, you know, at one time the Jordan River was really kind of a, a, a it was a big river. Uh, it's now more of the Jordan trickle. There's a lot of irrigation. There's, there's been all kinds of, of uh, political things taking place with what do you do with the Jordan River and where does the water, who, who does the water belong to? But there is a place where um, you can go and actually uh, get into the Jordan River, and it's a place where people go and get baptized. And this this uh, this fellow right here, his name is Scott Jarvis. He is the preacher for the Garden Ridge Church of Christ in Flower Mound, uh, Texas, up in the Metroplex. And uh, he is baptizing a woman who has been attending with her husband for a lot of years, his church, and she decided that she wanted to become a Christian and decided that while she was on this trip where she wanted to be baptized into Christ, was in the very river that Jesus himself was baptized in. And so what you're seeing in this picture is actually a new birth happening in the Jordan River. It was a very, very emotional moment. Jordan River, by the way, looks a lot like the Guadalupe. This is a Mensa Christi. Uh, in, in Latin, it means the table of Christ. And you'll remember at the end of uh, John's Gospel, there's a moment in which uh, Jesus has <coughs> told his disciples that he will meet them in northern Galilee. And he tells them, you know, that I'll meet you up there, but he doesn't go with them. Thank you. But he doesn't go with them. And the guys are out fishing, and they're about 100 yards offshore, and there's this guy that's cooking fish, and he stands up on the rock, and he calls out to them, and he says, throw your net on the other side, and that triggers something in John, and he goes, it's the Lord, and Peter jumps in the water and gets there, and this is the place where they ate the fish together, and Jesus, is re, uh, Jesus reinstates Peter. This church is known as the church of Peter's primacy. You'll remember that in Matthew chapter 16, when he makes the confession, you know, uh, the, the keys and, 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 and all of that is, is mentioned. Uh, here is where he says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. The two places in the New Testament, in the gospel, where Peter is, is sort of made the, the apostle of the apostles. And that's why it has that name, the church of Peter's primacy. This church is built, you'll, you'll see this, this, uh, this gigantic rock right here. Uh, it actually goes inside of the church here. The church is built over the kind of the high place. And, and right there, uh, you know, it was considered the place where, you know, Jesus kind of got up on the rock in order to yell to them. And it was on this rock 
that, uh, that he, was, he was cooking the fish. Now what's interesting about that is uh, you'll remember in Luke chapter 22 when Peter is, is denying Jesus, it says that there were burning coals on the ground. It's a very, very specific, unique way of talking about that fire where he was warming himself. The only other place that it appears in the New Testament is what Jesus is cooking the fish on. So again, you know, some significant stuff that's happening in these places. This was considered the place where, where Peter was, uh, was brought back in, into the fold by Jesus. And here's the shoreline from that church. Uh, from there we go to Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum is the, the headquarters of Jesus. Uh, we'll spend a lot of time talking about this place. It's one of my favorite places, along with Caesar, uh, Caesarea Philippi, to visit in the, um, in the northern part of Israel. But what we're looking at right there is a synagogue from the first century. You'll see that the stones uh, at the top are light-colored. They're limestone. Uh, the stones at the very bottom are from the first century. This is the place where on the Sabbath, Mark chapter 1, Jesus teaches in the synagogue. He amazes the people with his teaching. There is a demoniac that comes in. Jesus heals the demoniac and then walks across the street and heals Peter's mother-in-law. And that house is, is seen too. We'll talk some more about it. But from there we go to Beit Shan. Uh, this, there's, there's really not a tremendous amount of biblical significance to this place. Uh, but what it does show is this is sort of the Disneyland of the archaeological world of Israel. This, this, this place, more than just about any other place in the world, shows us what an ancient city looked like. This is a theater that was in Beit Shan. Uh, that is said to probably hold in the neighborhood of about 7,000 people. It was destro- destroyed in 749 by, uh, by an earthquake, but it's, it's absolutely a fantastic model for you to get in your mind what these ancient cities looked like. Um, what does have biblical significant significance for us, though, is if you look up here at the top, you know, these cities would start off small and then they would grow and grow and grow and grow, just like San Antonio has grown over the years. So these cities do. The original Beit Shan was up here on this tell or this mound. And the significance about Beit Shan, you'll remember in the Old Testament, uh, King Saul is killed on Mount Gilboa. He's beheaded. Uh, the Philistines grab him. And what do they do with his body? They hang him on a wall. And they hang him on the city walls of Beit Shan. And these walls right up here are the walls of that ancient city. So right up there is where Saul was hung after he had been killed. Uh, He fell on his own sword. And then the Philistines went in there and beheaded him. Uh, From there we go to Qumran. Uh, We'll spend some time talking about the significance of Qumran. Most of you know the Essenes. Most of you know about the Dead Sea Scrolls. It all started in that cave right there. That's known as Q4. It all started right there. There was a little Bedouin shepherd kid that was looking for a lost goat, threw a rock through the top of that thing. It landed inside of that cave. He heard something break. That sounded weird. He goes inside. He finds these these gigantic vases or, or clay pots. And inside of them, he finds these scrolls. And these scrolls go back a thousand years earlier than the earliest text that we had at that time. So up to this time, the Mesoretic text is, you know, the best text we have for the Bible. In 1948, they find the Dead Sea Scrolls that go back even a thousand years earlier than that. And the Essenes who lived in Qumran were Texas Longhorn fans. And we are that far from the Dead Sea, just 
just a mile or so from the Dead Sea once we get to Qumran. Dead Sea, you think it looks like the Gulf of Mexico. It's going to be kind of brown, and it's absolutely a gorgeous, gorgeous color. And just all different kinds of shades of blue. Uh, we had a couple of people that got in and actually floated on it. Uh, I've smelled uh, the, the Dead Sea and didn't want to smell like that for the rest of the day, so I didn't get in it. But it is, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, the next morning, early in the morning, before it got really hot, which was a good move, we went to Masada. Now, again, Masada doesn't have much of a, of a biblical imprint, except that it's, it's probably the strongholds of David that are mentioned in the Old Testament is probably Masada. And its significance for us, though, is this is where, after the Romans just wiped out Jerusalem in AD 70, they went down to Masada where the zealots, the last holdout of the zealots, there were a little under 1,000, I think 967 zealots, men, women, and children, that were up on top of this place. And that's where the Romans came and laid siege to it. And after uh, about nine months, built a ramp up the side of this mountain and broke in and found that everybody had committed suicide. But from the top of Masada, you can basically see right here, you have a Roman camp that is still intact. There's a Roman camp here. The Romans built a wall completely around the base of Masada so that no one could escape. It was part of their intimidation. What we have here is the snake path. Basically, this is the only path up the side of the thing, and no army would ever try to go up that way because what are you going to do as the army is coming up the snake path? You're going to roll some really big rocks down on top of them. So the Romans laid siege to the place and built this ramp up the side of it. And this is, there's about 70% of the original ramp still in existence. And this place right here is the breach in the wall that the Romans, starting all the way down here, brought their war machines up and beat down the gate. And when they came in, well, they, they, they basically breached the wall right as the sun is going down. They don't know what booby traps are behind the wall, so they wait until the next morning. That morning, the uh, 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 Ben uh, uh, Eleazar, uh, Ben Yair, who was the leader of the Essenes, convinced them in a speech that we have preserved in Josephus that came to him from one of, the, the, one of two women that survived this thing of what happened. He convinced them that it was better for them to kill themselves and to kill their children, to kill their families, rather than to be slaves to the Romans and whatever other unspeakable atrocities of war might happen to them. And so all of the heads of households killed their families. Then there were lots drawn, and there were ten that were drawn to kill the heads of the households and then there was one that was drawn who would kill the nine and then he would fall on his sword and so the next morning when the romans went through the wall ready for a fight they found everyone dead and what they found was that the water was left and that the food was left and it was a message to the romans that you were not going to take us we did this to ourselves we would not be your slaves so it's a very poignant story very very sad uh, but we'll talk about that more in the future as well. Here is Ein Gedi. This is the place, uh, one of the few oases, oases that you will find uh, near the Dead Sea. This is the place where David goes into the cave, and Saul goes in there to take care of business, and he you, you know, doesn't take Saul's life. But right here is the waterfall coming down into a pool down at the bottom of that. We finally make it to Jerusalem. We are standing on top of the Mount of Olives. We are looking down across the, the Kidron Valley. 
Here is the, the wall that goes around the temple. Here's the golden gate. Here's the entrances to the temple, uh, t- temple mound on the south side. These are the mikvah baths or the ritual baths that have been uncovered. This is where the baptisms on Pentecost would have taken place. You have the, uh, the Dome of the Rock. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk more about this uh, it, it, later, but it, it's a spectacular view, especially when you think that Jesus came over that same mountain and began to weep for this city that was going to reject him. Uh, on the Mount of Olive side, we go to Gethsemane. Uh, we got to see the oldest olive tree in the world. It goes back, its roots go back to the time of Jesus uh, 2,000 plus years ago. Uh, a very, very, very um, moving place to be. Uh, this is the church of the 12 nations. 12 nations gave money to build this church to prefer, uh, preserve this site at Gethsemane. This is the Lion Gate. Uh, if we were to go back to that picture of Jerusalem and look at the north side or that side on the right, this is where you would find this gate. And this gate is also, it's called the Lion Gate because the Crusaders put some lions up there at the top of it. But this is also the gate that is considered the place where they dragged Stephen out of Jerusalem, out of the temple area, and dragged him outside of the city and stoned him. It was right outside of these, this gate right here that the first Christian martyr was killed. This is the, uh, the church of St. Anne, the mother of uh, the Virgin Mary. Uh, there's, there, there's a lot of tradition that nobody really wants to get into. Uh, and the, the reason I show you this, I don't really want to talk about the church so much, but the acoustics in this church are probably the best that you will find anywhere in the world. The, the other significance of this church is that it's built at the site of the pool of Bethesda. Remember John 5, the angel swirls his hand in the water and the people try to get in it to get healed? This is the southern pool of the two pools that formed the pools of Bethsaida. Uh, from there, we walk to the place, it says in Latin, the place where uh, Jesus... Uh, was was uh, was taken, apprehended, and was beaten. You're basically walking into the area where once stood the fortress Antonia, and right here, these stones right here, the fortress Antonia was on the north uh, west side of the Temple Mount, and it was basically four gigantic towers with walls connecting them, and in the inside was this gigantic courtyard. It's known as the Lithostratus in Greek, or the Praetorium, or Gabbatha in Hebrew, and which in its really the pavement, it was an open courtyard area, and these stones from the first century were the stones in which the crowd showed up, Jesus was, was beat to death was with a flagellum. If you saw the movie, um, The Passion of Christ by Mel Gibson, uh, you know that, that uh, there was the place where the Romans just beat him half to death. I think it's a very accurate scene. It happened on these stones right here. Uh, this is the Damascus Gate. This is probably where he carried his cross out, uh, crossed uh, this street that didn't obviously exist during the time of Jesus, but he went into this area uh, probably where the garden, where some think, I, I don't particularly buy it that much, but the garden tomb was located. What's significant about this place, though, is that it's close to Gordon's Calvary. There's a couple of different places where they thought Jesus was crucified. If you'll look, and this goes back to 1910, it looks like a skull. And this is the road to Jericho. And we know that there were executions that took place up there because of, of uh, the, the remains of the executed being found down here. Uh, we know that Jesus, if he was crucified here, it was not on top because there's no road up there. He would have been crucified along this road right here because we know that people went by and mocked him 
and they were on the road when they did that. This is what it looks like today. And right here was a nose, the nose piece. Last year, just a year ago, uh, because of the weather, the nose fell off. They just woke up one morning and the nose was gone. Uh, Fifteen years ago, there was a road out in front with traffic. This bus station that's out there right now is, is a new addition. Uh, here we are, the, 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 the Tres Hombres in front of that garden tomb. We'll talk more about that. We made it down to Bethlehem. Uh, from Bethlehem, we go back into Jerusalem. This is the canonical, or the, the, this is the site of the Last Supper. Now, it didn't look like that. This has been built over the site, but this is the place where the, uh, the Last Supper took place. Uh, from, uh, from there, we went to Peter Galincantu. This is the place. This is the gates to the church where Peter's being told by Christ, you're going to deny me three times, and it's on the site where he actually did it. It's at the house of Caiaphas. And when you go into Caiaphas' house, the high priest, there would have been a dungeon. Uh, there would have been a place where Jesus had been beaten in Caiaphas' house. Uh, in this dungeon is a place where people's arms, very possible. We know this is Caiaphas' house. We don't know what position Jesus was, was tied up to in order to beat him, but it's very possible that he was tied up right here in this prison section of Caiaphas' house, and this is where they probably beat him with, with rods and with sticks and then threw him in a dungeon. Very famous statue there of, of Peter denying Jesus to the, to the young girl, and we will talk more as we go through this. But as you can see, it's just really emotional. It's just incredibly enlightening, and you just keep saying over and over again, this really happened, this really happened, this really happened. Uh, that'll make even more sense as we talk about some of the more details of the archaeology as we go through this. But you just keep saying, this really happened. I can't believe it. I'm standing in the place where it really happened. And then it dawns on you that if it really happened, then it's really real. And that everything that happened, if it happened, means that everything that was talked about in the future is going to happen as well. And what that means is, is that the story that began in Galilee continues in San Antonio, Texas. And Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And if there are some ways that, that we can help you as you make the, 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 you know, as, as you make the good fight to, to, to struggle with faith and to struggle with what it means to be a disciple, to, to live that life, to give your life to the Christ, and, and to every day that be your decision. If there are ways that we can help you with that, we're going to have a couple of shepherds down here at the front. Come down and talk to them as we stand and sing. <laughs> 